Hello, and welcome back to the Voice of Empyro. My name is Tom, and my pants are too tight. Our special guest for this week is a fellow MIR student named Craig, who has done extensive research on the Pacific with a focus on Samoa. Wendy disappears about halfway through this podcast episode. That's because we recorded this episode in two different sessions. We chose to do this because there was a development in the Samoan parliament a couple of days after we recorded the first episode, and we thought it would be best to get Craig back in with us to talk about what's happened in Samoa since. Unfortunately, Wendy was unable to make it to this second session, hence why she's disappeared. All the same, we had a ripper chat with Craig, and we hope you enjoy this episode. And I'm going to loosen my pants. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Voice of Empyro. Today we're talking about the Pacific. Now I personally don't know what a Pacific is or was, so we've got Craig with us today to tell us what the Pacific is. Hello! Along with Wendy and Marco. Hang on, who is Craig? Yeah, who who are you Craig? Look, it's a mystery to me as well. Um, Fair enough. (laughs) Hi everyone, Uh, my name's Craig. I am a first year MIR student, I've just started and I've just come from Queensland. Um, and my research interests are directly in the Pacific, and I think it's the most important region for Australian students to be studying. So, glad to be here today. Perfect. Wonderful. And I think Craig is going to be a pretty special voice because he's got deep research in the Pacific, but he's also a student like us. So, try to dumb it down for us, Craig, because people like me don't know that much about the Pacific. Look, I'm very stupid, so it's impossible for me to try and actually reach that high level on my own. <laughs> oh, you, you'll fit in perfectly. I'm so glad. <laughs> Yeah, okay. also the Pacific, I guess, considering we are in Australia, is very underestimated because it's there is a very, like, the geographical proximity of the Pacific is very important, but at the same time, there's not focus at all. Mm, I think know? that's one of the reasons I was so glad you guys asked me in today because I think the most frustrating thing for me since I started my MIR is that it's been so hard for me to find opportunities to study and learn about the Pacific. And the geographic proximity of the region, as you just described, just isn't reflected in the range of options available to students. Even, sorry. And if anyone is interested in DFAT, I think it was actually one of the regions that were most of focus this year. Mm. Well, the Pacific Step Up, which happened in around, happened a few years ago. I can't give you an exact year, sorry. time what is it it's probably one of the most important things i think to happen in australian foreign policy of the last decade but before Um, we get too much into the pacific let's get you to first tell us what actually are we talking about when we're talking about the pacific like what countries what area where on the map i don't know (laughs) sure sure um so i think the pacific in terms of introducing it should be introduced in terms of the three it's sort of three major regions of different island countries um, you've got what they call Melanesia, you've got Polynesia, and you've got Micronesia. Now, Melanesia is the range of countries which sort of just sit probably the closest off Australia's east coast. It also sounds like a... <laughs> 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 um, just sitting off the uh, Australian coast, you've got countries like Papua New Guinea, you've got Fiji, you've got the Solomon Islands, places like that. Hang on, are they the Melanesian Islands? Some of them, yes. Like, okay. not all of them. New Caledonia also fits into Melanesia. Um, and countries like that. And probably the defining feature of those countries is their diversity. Within Papua New Guinea, you have more ethnic groups than you do in any other individual country on Earth. So, hang on, what was the difference between Melanesia, Polynesia, and Micronesia? 
I actually remember Derek in one of our classes explaining the meaning of them and micro meant they were like super small. Mm-hmm. Polynesia, I can't remember. Poly means many. Poly means many. He's <laughs> <laughs> um, Greek. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're not Greek. Them. The islands aren't themselves aren't Greek, just yeah. to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> That's Peloponnesia. Well, I was about to say, having just spent the morning watching Eurovision, Australia is actually right next to Europe, I've discovered. And so, <laughs> so are all the Pacific Islands as well. Oh, yeah. Um, but... Uh, Differences between each of the yeah, countries. Yeah, so like, Melanesia is the ones closest to it, very diverse. Polynesia includes New Zealand. Um, it includes a range of countries like Samoa, um, Tonga. Basically, if you've watched the movie Moana, um, yeah. you've got the idea in your head. Gives um, me Hawaiian vibes. Hawaii is also in Polynesia. I'd say the culture across those countries is probably more, um, slightly less diverse than in Melanesia, largely because there's a history of people using like boats to travel between them. And so there was much more connection between these islands historically than there was in places in Melanesia. Go into yeah. Micronesia. Micronesia, I think it's probably the least understood one. Um, they're the furthest north, mm-hmm. and it includes countries like, shockingly, the Federated States and Micronesia. Um, Palau also fits into that one. Um, and they tend to have a bit more, in terms of like international relations, they tend to be a bit more affiliated with the United States. Yeah. Is um, Guam part of Micronesia? Guam yeah. probably yeah. closely into Micronesia. Some yeah. of them don't fit clearly, like Nauru, sort of sometimes gets thrown into Melanesia and sometimes yeah. gets thrown into Micronesia. So it's not a clear delineation. Of course. Um, but probably I'd say the defining feature for Micronesia is that they're very small and the islands tend to be, um, in terms of political sense, affiliated with the United States pretty heavily. Mm. So where does the most popular Pacific country, Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. fit into? So PNG. Yeah. PNG's in Melanesia. I'd say it's probably the main sort of centre of Melanesia. Um, and I think it really shows that feature that I was talking about in terms of that diversity because there's such a plurality of languages and cultures existing within, like, a large island, but not the largest one on Earth or anything. So that's probably what stands out. And why do you think the Pacific is an important region to study? Why? Yeah, what, what are the main reasons? Especially when you say the Pacific is so big. Like, obviously, it goes from north to south, including mm-hmm. New Zealand and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Like, which part is important to Australia? And why, like Marco was saying? Great question. Um, I think probably to go to Marco's question first, I think what I'd emphasize to students is that whenever you're studying IR or you're studying politics at all, thinking about things from the perspective of small island states in the Pacific will really does sort of transform how you think about politics at large. Um, so to give an example, like when you think about the Pacific and you take that perspective, you suddenly realize that, for example, Australia, um, we are obviously a settler colony um, founded when, you know, British people turned up. Well, the modern state of Australia, obviously Indigenous people have been here for hundreds of years. But then when you start thinking about things from the, pers- the perspective of the Pacific, you also realise that Australia was a colonial power. Um, they, we were the colonial administration in Papua New Guinea until 1974. And we continue to have, like, a major, um, like, presence in that country, um, partially due to that post-colonial history. Same with New Zealand. New Zealand was a colonial administrating power in Samoa um, and a number of other ones, particularly in Polynesia. Um, and so when you think about things from the perspective of the Pacific in that way, suddenly Australia's role in the region suddenly transforms. It's not just that they're geographically close, it's that there's historical ties mm-hmm. and that there's a historical responsibility for some of the wrongs that were done during colonialism, uh, the period of colonialism, rather. Um, so, yeah, I think... The reason it's important is because small island states are at the periphery not thought about enough and they often have distinctly different preferences 
to larger countries in the global system. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give another example. So like climate change, for example, there's the uh, off-stated sort of irony that um, Pacific Island states are the ones that are going to be most affected by climate change, but they've also done the least to contribute to it. I think Canberra's been really willing to try and step up their role in the Pacific over the last few years. The Pacific step up's been a massive change in that regard, but it's still sort of on our terms. What was the Pacific step up? The Pacific step up was a recognition by the government that Australia had been neglecting the Pacific, that we were close to them, but we weren't investing in these countries and we weren't helping them despite them being our closest friends. Um, And I think what I would say, it's a great thing that Australia has done to try and get back involved in its region and try and become invested again. But if you look under the surface, there's an element to which, like, the Pacific step up is reflected by Australia's concerns about China getting uh, a greater influence in the region. And so you can see that geopolitical competition um, playing out through Mm -hmm. policy or or things like that. And it shows that Australia isn't invested in the Pacific yet, I don't think, as a region with its own preferences and needs, but as something where... Australia's interest in the Pacific is driven by Australia's interests in avoiding Chinese sort of interference in the region. Yeah, Yeah. And of course, I think, you know, like the Australian government will set policies, especially for Asia, because uh, there is more money, more opportunities Mm -hmm. to invest. I mean, I don't think the economy in the Pacific Mm -hmm. nation is... you know, well, that's there it. are m- that many opportunities also in terms of raw materials, resources. I mean, absolutely. I think there's yeah. a lot of economic challenges to be addressed in the Pacific. Yeah. So somewhere like Samoa, for example, nearly like 30 percent of the economy comes entirely from people remitting uh, income from home. So people yeah. come to Australia, they work and they send their income back home to their family in Samoa. And that's 30% of the country's GDP. Wait, so recap that for us. Yeah. Why is the Pacific important to Australia? Are you saying it's because, um, you know, there's it basically one of the countries are basically sinking. That's going to be our problem. Yeah. But also it's of interest to us from a political perspective. I think there's a few reasons. I would probably give the three biggest ones in terms of Australia's interests. Mm-hmm. One, you've got quite challenges from climate change, which are just going to swamp us and we're going to have to address them yeah so it's our future problem that we need to address then you've got the china issue where china has very much moved Mm -hmm. into the region and from the perspective of the pacific that's been in many ways a really good thing because it's come with a lot of investment it's come with a lot of new infrastructure um and it's difficult to turn down like loans that are given to try and build this new infrastructure those loans never come without sort of their price and i think the price that you see is that over the last couple of years, a lot of Pacific Island countries have stopped recognizing Taiwan mm, um, yeah. no, and yeah. have switched over to China. So this one is uh, Solomon one Islands. of the... How many countries still recognize the Not that China. in Africa, almost, I think only two countries still recognize Taiwan. Yeah. Most of the big ones are yeah, still in because, uh, Yeah, because one, okay. uh, it's called uh, One China Policy, yeah. this thing. You have yeah. to yeah. recognize only one China. I'm going to search up yeah. how many... Countries, yeah, this is a good indicator of uh, how the Chinese influence is in our region to see, you know. It's the sort of thing where China has these really great investment opportunities for these countries, which are hard to turn down because they struggle economically in many ways, yeah. But that comes with political consequences, and those sort of things have to be thought about. Do you know much about Australia's role in that sort of space? Like, how are they dealing with that? Well, yeah, sorry, Wendy, no, go on. (laughs) Um, I think. Uh, the Pacific step up very much has been Australia's way of doing that. And I think that's been a really positive thing because it's not like our way of pushing back against China in the region has been 
to directly invest in communities again in the um, Pacific and to try and uh, build our own infrastructure there and to try and help the people there to live happy and fulfilled lives as best we can. Yeah. Which is not to say that things are perfect and which is not to say that there's not challenges, but um, the Pacific Step Up, I think, has been probably one of the better foreign policy decisions of the Australian government in recent years. Yeah. Of the little study I have done on the Pacific, I do remember um, hearing that Australia's response, although they had the Pacific Step Up over Mm -hmm. the years, it's very, like, in and out. Like, it's not very consistent. It is. And although it almost seems like Australia is doing a great job for the Pacific, I'm not sure if the Pacific countries feel the same way about how it's received, how they're receiving it. Absolutely. And I think... That's a very good point to make because I think, once again, it comes down to Australia's aid policy towards the Pacific mm. is driven by our needs, not by theirs. Yeah, um, that's what And you're so, like, one of the biggest places you see that is in climate change policy because you've got lots of little island states saying, help us, we're going underwater, please, please, God, help us. And Scott Morrison turns up and says, no, we like our coal. Um, and that doesn't go down very well, yeah. as you can imagine. Um I found out um, how many how recognised many Taiwan. 15. Which ones are in the uh, Pacific? Um, I'm not sure how many are still left. I know Solomon's are gone. Oh, there's, there's Tuvalu, um, Palau, Nauru, um, Marshall it. Islands. Yeah, the others look like... Um, oh, there's ones that I don't know, like St. Lucia. Like, is that... That's in the Caribbean. That's Caribbean. Uh, St. Kitts and also Nevis. Caribbean. Caribbean. Uh, I'm guessing St. Vincent and the... Also Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> All the saints are um, in the Caribbean. And then... <laughs> Marshall Island are in oh, and then the Haiti, yeah. Guatemala. They're Caribbean too, they're Caribbean, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Guatemala's in Central America. Oh, whoops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there's still a few there. I think Nauru's interesting because I believe, I could be wrong, maybe Tommy will look that up, they were also one of the only countries to recognise the disputed territories of Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia. Interesting. Um, and basically, once again, I think it was to do with Russian investment in the region um it's actually amazing though that they have made that stance to mm. support taiwan against china when they're so small it's like they don't have that much leverage but i think in a way they're placing so much weight on their values yeah you're right about that Nauru. They, yeah, yeah. yeah um there i think it shows the division between sort of economic needs and political needs it costs Nauru nothing to recognize afghanistan mm. and south Ossetia, mm-hmm. but it gets them a lot economically to get this investment and i think nauru is a really interesting case study because like so fun fact fact fans um in the facts 60s with craig <laughs> facts with craig facts is with craig you tried i appreciate it uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah in the 1960s nauru was the second richest country on the planet per G- gdp per capita what um, yeah just process when? that for a second Sorry? no no what say year? it again <laughs> we need to ni- say it again yeah, in the 1960s nauru was the second richest country on the planet by per, cap, uh, per capita GDP. Mother wow. of oh, f- um, What from? Like, what were they selling? <laughs> uh, uh, the the formal name is phosphate, but I believe what it is is mostly bird poo. Um, oh. <laughs> so, phosphate. It sounds really cool when you yeah. said yeah, just yeah. that word. So they strip-mined the island of all the phosphate and they sold it off and it made them incredibly rich. And then what happened was they put it in a sovereign wealth fund, which was intended to last the people of Nauru for generations. Mm-hmm. And then they made a series of questionable investment decisions which included things like an airline which didn't have a lot of flyable planes um or my favorite is tiger <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite you're out there the, somewhere tasmanians <laughs> my other favorite fact about the, uh, naru is that they also bankrolled a west end musical about uh the mona lisa falling in love with leonardo da vinci um 
this you've never heard of this musical and the reason why is because on opening night the entire audience worked out walked out and then it had to close four weeks later having lost the entire budget someone should write a novel about that oh that's great good. story great story um but yeah it's sort of i think that's a great case study of how there was economic potential um and then now the a lot of these countries have become dependent on aid, dependent on their neighbours in order to economically sustain themselves. That's actually one of the things I um, read about when I was studying Bougainville, which is mm-hmm. in Papua New Guinea, I believe. Is that, is that where... Uh, Bougainville? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Bougainville. Is it, it's spelled like Bougainville, right? Yeah. 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 The Ville of Bougainville. I, I heard that on the radio years ago, and I'm like, wait, Bougainville? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we actually have a Bougainville. Oh, wait, no, it's not us. It's another well, country. Yes. Wendy and I actually watched a great documentary about yes, Bougainville a couple of weeks ago. What was it called again? I want to say... Opia. Opia. Not opium. I don't know. O-P-H-I-R. Yes, Opia. Yeah, um... Oh, uh, Ophia, yeah, Ophia. great documentary. Would recommend if you know nothing about yeah, the no, region. Yeah, no, but that was actually one of the things that came up. It was the fact that, like, um, you know, countries like Australia are trying to bring economic potential to the region, but it has repercussions on the citizens living mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Um, affecting their rights, not really understanding their culture, how to speak to women, mm-hmm. not realizing that women own the land there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really good if we could use that as a segue to talk about um, some of the challenges in one of my specific mm. areas of interest, which is Samoa. Um, yeah. I, so my major research project in the Pacific to date has been on the recent constitutional changes in Samoa, mm-hmm. um, which were introduced in 2020, and which don't sound, you've probably not heard of them, but they've just brought down a 40-year government in Samoa. So Samoa, oh. Samoa's 40-year government by the Human Rights Protection Party has just fallen um, in, a, in a democratic election, and they now have their very first female prime minister ever in their history, wow. um, which mm. is pretty amazing. Um, so these constitutional changes, I think, really sum up what you were just talking about, Wendy, because um, they sought to... Re- they sought, So jumping back a step, um, Samoa was colonised by the Germans and then was administered by New Zealand. And so effectively, Samoa was left with two legal systems at the end of the colonial period. Mm-hmm. They had the system of customary law, which had existed for centuries in Samoa, and then they had a system of introduced common law, which operated on top of that effectively through courts, as we would recognise them here in Australia. Um, and so trying to like rationalise between those two has been really, really hard. Um, and these bills, what they sought to do was to split the court system effectively into two entirely independent court systems, one administering customary law and one administering uh, common law. Mm-hmm. Now, this raised a lot of challenges because some things in customary law perhaps uh, weren't... Wait, on, so honest, yeah. common law is from the Germans and... Mm, common is from the... Common like Anglo-Saxon yeah, one. It's, it's Anglo-Saxon, yes. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm not quite sure how they ended up with the common law. I'm assuming that came from the New Zealand period of administration because New Zealand also is common law um, but the there's these two legal systems back then they've got two court systems the problem became that some of customary uh, practices are superficially inconsistent with like human so rights why treaties they, and things like that okay I see um, yeah. and so there's been a lot of criticism from people like former high court justice here in Australia Michael Kirby mm-hmm. um, and from UN bodies a lot of law societies around the world and these bills were also very unpopular within Samoa. Do you have example an example of one of those laws that conflict with human rights? Yeah, so um, probably the point of distinction comes from something called the Village Phono Act. Um, so a village phono is like a village council. 
um, which administers traditional life within Samoa's villages. Mm -hmm. um, the village Fono Act was introduced in 1990 and effectively gave um, a wide scope of customary power to the village Fono to administer customary punishment. Um, the bill itself lists a particular list of things, but then the way the act is uh, drafted means that the power of customary punishment of the village Fono is effectively unlimited. Um, and so there's nothing stopping the Fono from administering any type of customary punishment they like. So it could be torture. Well, no. Like. I mean, it's important not to... It's important to remember that... It's not torture. It's yeah. not torture. Probably the most controversial one has been um, what they call banishment, yeah. where if someone does something in the village, you can banish them from the village, maybe for a period, maybe forever, and they just can't come back. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the most controversial one. There's been... I don't want to simplify that. There's been a lot of reform on that in recent years, mm -hmm. and it's not a straightforward thing of, like, banishment conflicts with human rights versus human rights good. Yep. But um, that is an example of a tension there, I think. Okay. But you're talking about Samoa and... <laughs> well, yeah. So I think just to wrap that one up a little bit, um, these bills happened. And then this year they had an election and the Human Rights Protection Party, um, which is quite ironic because they introduced these bills, which arguably conflict with human rights. Mm -hmm. um, and then a new party arose this year. Um, called the, I think it translates to like the Faith in One God Party, um, but they, the abbreviation is the Fast Party, um, led by a woman, really cool woman. Um, and she's just won the election after a number of disputes. And so um, that's a really important step. Um, Samoa's democracy had previously been judged as sort of like not quite top tier just because it was a bit suspicious that this government had never gotten out. And so it shows the strength of Samoa's democratic institutions and it has allowed sort of, I think, the people there to have their voice about the sort of government they want. So was this with. all this done without the interference of foreign powers? Is this what you were saying? So I think to a large extent, yes, there was some criticism from international bodies, but I think what was shown was that this happened through an ordinary democratic process mm -hmm. in which the people of Samoa expressed that they didn't want this anymore yeah. um, and they didn't want this government anymore, which I think shows that it's important to... When you're oh, studying right, this, casting the foreign powers out, yes. Well, it's not even necessarily casting the foreign powers out, but these countries have agency, mm -hmm. and we have to remember that Samoa makes decisions for itself, and it's not just an yeah. object for Australian foreign. Yeah. The system yeah. of checks and balances is yeah. solid. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and perhaps more so than it was thought to be beforehand. Um, but yeah, it's not all happy sailing. So that was like, good. That was good. <laughs> um, it's not all happy sailing. Like in the region, the Pacific Islands Forum, which is the major sort of regional body, had mm. just completely fallen apart in the last couple of months. Um, so the reason that happened comes back to where we started. Um, and I promise I'll shut up very soon. Um, no, but, it's fine. Thank uh, you. So the reason the Pacific Islands Forum has fallen apart, so there's a rule, an unofficial rule, that the head of the Pacific Islands Forum rotates between Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia. Um, and it was Micronesia's turn. But then at the vote for who was going to be in charge of the Pacific Islands Forum going forward, the Secretary General of it, uh, the Cook Islands delegate won. And that was from Polynesia. And so the Micronesian states have withdrawn from the PIF. Um, oh. And it's very much in doubt as to whether this body can sustain itself going forward now. Yeah. Um, and that's the major regional body. So how are these countries going to engage going forward? It's a real question. Yeah. So it sounds like there's quite a few issues happening there, which we've mm. and that's touched not even, on here and there. But That's not even going to the COVID outbreaks, mm. but we won't go there. I've got a question about, yeah. about Scott Morrison. Oh, my so favorite man. I heard at some point that like he had a, a... His religion was similar. His sect of Christianity was similar to that of this island he visited. Yeah. And that he had like a kind of 
connection there based off that. Yeah, I mean, Christianity is a really big part of culture in a large part of the Pacific. And I think it's it's interesting because there's a wrestling with post-colonial sort of identity in a lot of Pacific countries. But Christianity is not one of the things that tends to get questioned as part of that. Mm. So Christianity was brought to these islands largely by missionaries, um, not necessarily by active colonial powers. And so in many ways it has been, in similar ways to like parts of Africa, it has been assimilated into the local culture and it's viewed very much as like mm. ours, not just as something that was introduced or imposed, like, for example, the common law system, which is viewed very much as like, not by everyone, and a lot of people like it, um, and I don't want to simplify these debates, but there is a perspective which says that the common law is introduced and sort of imposed from outside, hmm. whereas I don't think religion is something that's viewed quite the same way. Okay. Um, yeah. In, the, in terms of uh, study opportunities, I heard that you are doing a thesis about the yeah. Pacific. You are the, what are you doing? So I wrote my law thesis on these Samoan constitutional changes. I'm currently trying to find a supervisor to supervise me, hopefully for something. Um, I'm looking maybe at like China's role in the region or um, alternatively, I might look at some of the impacts of COVID because I think particularly in Melanesia, mm -hmm. there's been there's going to be some far rising uh, uh, some far-reaching, rather, influ influences of COVID happening there. I also discovered that one of my schoolmates is the cousin of the health minister of Fiji. Oh. Um, and so I think that's a vibe, and I just kind of want to get it. <laughs> Here we go. Free healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but in terms of things that students who are interested in this region can do, mm -hmm. um, I know that there's the... Unfortunately, UniMelb doesn't offer a lot of courses on the Pacific. Um, I've been told that the Asia-Pacific China Prosperity and Peace is probably the closest you're going to get. Um, What's the Asia-Pacific Prosperity and Peace? Oh, that's subject. Yes, that subject. I haven't okay. taken it, but people who have taken me have said that that's the closest they've gotten to a Pacific okay. subject. Yeah. Other than that, let's riot and get a proper Pacific subject to you. Know, <laughs> yeah. Um, Sal, Keaton, Daniel, and and yeah. In terms <laughs> of uh, work opportunities, do you know if there are any opportunities or also volunteer opportunities as yeah. well? Well, yeah. I think one of the reasons that this is so important for students to study is that most of the NGOs in Australia are largely focused on the Pacific. Mm. Yeah. So my partner works at Oxfam, um, and they are most of their programs are in places like Vanuatu, um, Papua New Guinea, um, Solomon Islands, like countries in the region. It's not about the far-reaching countries that we spend a lot of our time in at the MIR learning about. It's these places in our yeah. region. Mm. And so that's why it's important to note. If you want to immediately get involved in the region and start making those contacts, um, I know there's a new body called the Australia Pacific Youth Dialogue mm -hmm. and they are currently hiring for people to join their team. So if you've liked what you've heard today and you'd like to learn more and you'd like to get involved in our local region, then I'd encourage you to reach out to them on Instagram or Facebook. I've also heard of um, recently I was looking into Project Everest mm -hmm. Ventures, which does internships. So they're a social enterprise and they do internships in the Pacific Islands or yep. to various countries like Timor-Leste, Fiji, yep. Vanuatu. Expensive, though. I mean, you've got to pay, like, $5,000 for yeah. it. But if you're interested in getting on the groundwork, I reckon they'd be a good place to look out yeah. for, too. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but And just, I think, if one other takeaway is mm. just in your classes, like, we all study the IR, like, masters here. Mm. And when you're taking these classes, just always remember to try and think about these things from the perspective of our region. Because it is a 
different perspective to, a, to, I think, the majority perspective we tend to get in our classes. Imagine you're a small island state with limited resources, a small population, mm. and not a great deal of influence on the global system, and think about what perspective that might give you on the major global issues That's a good point to end on. Yeah. So now we're in part two. We're in yeah. the Pacific part yeah. two, mm. and Craig is with Marco and I, and we are going to talk about what's happened in Samoa since the election, mm-hmm. because when we recorded the first part. Before, yeah. We tried recording this last time, and then Samoa sort of went up in smoke a little bit um, and had lots of things happen very rapidly, such that our first part, despite being very accurate at the time, is now deeply inaccurate. <laughs> um, and so in the interests of, you know, academic integrity, yeah. we decided to re-record. Yeah. And just generally being a good bunch of guys. I think yeah. so too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Samoa. We spoke a little bit uh, in the first part about the election last month and how um, there had just been a new lady who'd been elected as the first female Prime Minister of Samoa. Um, her name's Fiamine Naomi Mata'afa. Um, and she, at the last time we spoke, seemed well on her way to just cruise into the parliament and um, become Prime Minister. Mm. Unfortunately, <laughs> there was a slight snag. Um, what happened... There was a sausage? Hmm? Yes. A, yeah, there yes. was a sausage. Yes, yeah. and his name was Tuilaipa Selene Maliogawi, the former Prime Minister. Yeah, um, he's a sausage. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, You're or, hearing or, it for the first or, time. Or, or just a man, if you want. A man, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, But he, a few days later after that, um, decided to that he was not going to allow Parliament to sit in order to swear in the new government. Okay. He declared that the, ele- that the results of the election were not valid. Um, and launched a series of quite complicated constitutional... I wonder who tried to do that before. Mm, I was about to say, we've never heard that one before. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, but, uh, so Tuilepa refused to let the, gov- the government be sworn in. So what effectively happened was there's these amazing images, if you look online, where um, Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa turns up with her, like, government to get sworn in at the parliament building and she can't get in. So she's, like, banging on the door and they won't let her in and they ended up oh, swearing in um, Ms. Mata'afa in, like, a tent outside the parliament building. Oh, wow. Um, so things went south very quickly. Damn. Um, so currently, basically, we're in a situation where Samoa has two governments, if you want to think of it that way. Mm. Or two governments claiming to be the legitimate government. Um, does that make sense? That makes sense. That does make sense. That sounds like... A component of a civil war, almost. I look. This thing, sort of thing, does happen relatively often in the okay. Pacific. Um, it rarely leads to civil war or anything. Mm. I wouldn't be worried in that sense. Okay. Right now, I don't. After last time, I don't want to rule. Oh god, let's not jinx the civil war in Samoa. <laughs> part, part three, Samoa uh. civil war. Um, no, but currently, it's there's negotiations ongoing. Um, and there was a similar situation which played out in Papua New Guinea um, okay. around 2011, 2012. Um, where government refused to step down. There were negotiations which went on for about a year in that case. And then they resolved it and a government went forward. I couldn't mm. tell you so which one. No, that's all right. who, The specifics of that one. But yeah. this this has happened. There's precedent for this. It's not great <laughs> from like a democratic perspective. Um, but I wouldn't worry about Samoa decaying into like anarchy and civil war in the immediate future. That's good. That's good. That's not going to happen. Look, we always live in hope. Um, but it does show, I think, that there's a lot of domestic tensions within these sort of Pacific Island nations. Like, well, I think I said this before, but they're like often viewed as very small countries from the perspective of Australia or New Zealand. But 
we have to remember that there are people living here. These people have divergent views mm. and we have to have respect for the sort of the different factions within these countries and have, and acknowledge them in our analysis because otherwise you're not getting a true picture of what's going on. So yeah. there are distinct factions going on here and they both have sort of different viewpoints. Mm. Um, in terms, did you want me to talk about those different viewpoints or like... Oh, sorry. Uh, I didn't quite know how to respond to that. It just seemed like the natural conclusion of uh, sure, uh, what sure, you sure. were saying. Um, Marco, did you want to say something? Yes. Um, in terms of uh, moving on to the climate change uh, issue, like mm. what are the biggest like concerns for the area? Like, for example, what countries... I think climate change has unequal impacts on the on the region and uh, i don't know i want to ask you if you know if the if there are any particular states countries which are mm. most that, that they're gonna be or they already are most impacted by yeah. climate change whilst i don't know maybe i don't know i'm just assuming that for example like papua new guinea will have l less impacts than uh, french polynesia for example you, you know what yeah. i mean mm -hmm. um like so obviously different topic but um in terms of climate change it's obviously one of the most sort of existential threats facing the region at the moment mm. um you're right in that the impacts are not felt uniformly so um the ones which are most impacted are the sort of low-lying coral atoll states if you have a look at like for example tuvalu on google maps i in my head tuvalu is an island and then you look at the google maps and it's like sort of a very narrow strip of like land which just narrowly sits above yeah. the water Tuvalu. Is, Tuvalu, is that yeah. what you call an atoll it's an atoll, atoll yeah, yeah. Or, or an atoll yeah, i've never been quite sure how you yeah. pronounce that word but oh, one of the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, atoll um and so it's very low sitting um it's tuvalu and kiribati are the two which is the one which looks like kiribati when you see it written down yeah um, tuvalu and kiribati are the ones which are uh, most at risk of just vanishing um there's a, estimates that they probably have, you know, 30 years sort of minimum, perhaps as long as 50 or 60. But, um, you know, somewhere in the next couple of decades within our lifetime, they're no longer going to be there. Yeah. And so that's going to become a massive policy issue just for the region generally, because you have thousands and thousands of people who live on these islands and they need to have somewhere to live. Is it possible to build fake islands like on top of it, just to, to build the islands up? I mean... You can ask China about that if you like. <laughs> yeah, you can ask. <laughs> I think they are good at making yeah, yeah. new islands. I think they're quite fond it, of that, actually. from making, like, rocks to, to turn rocks to islands, mm. you know? And you have got an atoll just sitting there. You can just <laughs> you put, I don't know quite how yeah. that works, but you could probably just put lots of sand yeah. on top of it and eventually it'll be fine. That's, it. yeah. um, that's certainly one thing which I've seen discussed. I don't know if it's discussed as, like, the most serious sort of option because I think there's more of an acknowledgement that like you can certainly build an island but then you're just left with a hunk of sand and what are these people like you lose the culture of like of the island which has been there for you know thousands of years yeah, hundreds of years at this true. point these people lose their homes still um like it's still a massive yeah. uproot for the population of these islands climate refugees right? yeah mm. climate refugees yeah climate mm. refugees it's going to be one of, one of the big things and like mm. I can't remember if it's Tuvalu or Kiribati off the top of my head, but one of them bought some land in Fiji, um, effectively as agricultural land, yeah. um, so that they had enough to support themselves because there's not enough arable land left in these countries left to support the population, effectively. Mm. Does that make sense? That, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. So that they've got to suffer. Yeah, and um, like 
you give also a, a overview on China. Like I want to ask also about the geopolitics. Like, sure. do you think Ch is China using? It's a quite specific like the question. Like, do you think China is using climate change to have a, a positive influence, an active influence in the region? I don't know if you know about any. You know, because for yeah. example, uh, what happened last year with the Vanuatu storm, mm -hmm. I, d I don't know if, if it a was a storm. Yeah. It was a cyclone. Yeah, a yeah. cyclone, yeah. So, and China used to aid, you know, there was yeah. this dispute, you know, between Australia and China. Because, yeah, yeah. You know? I think it's complicated. So like, yeah, very... um, for example, I don't know much about the recovery effort from the one immediately last year other than there was a storm, but Cyclone Pam happened in Vanuatu a few years ago. And both China and Australia and New Zealand all contributed okay, to the yeah. recovery effort. I don't think there's necessarily anything sinister about a country going in to help. Like, it's, China is a massive power in the region. They, like, if they're going in to help smaller countries, mm. that's not necessarily a bad thing. The concern, I think, comes more when you talk about some of the BRI projects which you're seeing in these Pacific Island nations. Um, just in purely in terms of, like, the debt question... I am not here to make a claim that China is out to put countries into debt traps yeah. or that yeah. they're like, like there's no, I don't know if there's any cackling evil genius. I don't think there is, but I think it is true that you're seeing, I was going through the Samoan budget, not to go jump back to my favorite country in the Pacific, um, but the Samoan government budget last year, they got a, um, effectively some relief on like a several million dollar loan, which China had issued to Um, build several infrastructure projects in Samoa. Yeah. And so COVID particularly, um, I think, has influenced the capacity of small island nations to pay their debts. And China is one of their major debtors. Yeah. Mm. I'm not going to go any further and say that there's We have to see the next on. few years what yeah, happens. I, I, yeah. I, I don't feel educated enough to say if there's anything sinister in that. I, But it is, there are debts and we there has to be some, from the Pacific, sorry, from the perspective of the Pacific, which is where I tend to think, mm there has to be thought given to how these small island nations are going to pay out their debts because they do have them and COVID has made it more difficult to yeah. pay. By the way, I didn't know there, there is American Samoa. American Samoa, yes. So there's oh my God, two Samoas. Yeah, US territory. Did yeah. you know? I had no idea. I knew that <laughs> Hawaii was is an American state. Yeah, yeah. so American, American Samoa, Samoa sits just on the other side of the... It's sort of like... If you look at a map of Samoa, there are two main islands. I think it's Upolu and Savai'i. Um, and then the main islands, there's a series of little islands. That's the independent state of Samoa. And, and then you've got a couple of tiny little islands hanging yeah. off the sort of east coast. Of and the, okay. and, and from, that's American what, territory. from what I've seen from the map, there is also the, the timeline. Yeah, the dateline. So, yeah. so basically from American Samoa and normal Samoa, yeah. it's another day. Is American Samoa on the other side of the dateline? I think so. Okay, I, I never remember yeah. which side of the dateline yeah. it is because I know Samoa is very close. So they have the same... Yeah. Time, but different day, right? Yeah, it's oh not quite God. as like weird as if you look at the international dateline, Kiribati, they literally were like, We want to be on this side, yeah, okay. and so they carved thing. out like yeah. a little like bit of the dateline which just goes way to the east, just so Kiribati could be on this side of the dateline. Interesting, um, it's like the dateline is not a straight line, it's sort of like oh. it's a very geopolitical thing because like, yeah. countries decide which side of it they want to yeah. be on. Politics of time, yeah. the politics of time, yeah. you can control time if you live in Kiribati. Oh my god, which day is it? Who knows? Yeah, which day is it? Whichever one we decide. Um, wow, yeah, yeah, no. so um. Like I said, there's politics happening everywhere in the region. For and every kind of topics. 100%, 100%. Um, but yeah, just one 
jumping back very slightly just to the Samoa thing, just on something to mm. sort of think about at the end. One of the things underpinning the current sort of crisis of democracy in Samoa is a there's debates over like you know should governments step down when they are rightfully voted out. Mm. I mean, we would say yes. I would hope. I'd hope so um, too. <laughs> yeah, but there's also complexity in terms of like who gets to speak for Samoa and who claims to have sort of the because one of the things which the Human Rights Protection Party, which Tuilepa is a me- member of. Um, has very much claimed to be sort of the rightful speaker for Samoan culture and the protector of Samoan culture. And mm. um, one of the, there was a, my work has been focused on a series of acts which were passed last year, which were very much claimed to protect and promote Samoan culture. Um, but then you also have the other party run by Fiamineo Mata Afa, and she claims that, you know, there's views that this legislation doesn't protect Samoan culture and that there's other ways of doing it. And so there's, always important to remember once again that these places aren't monoliths and that there's constant debates and conflict over like who speaks for Samoa yeah. what is what is Samoa like states at the end of the day are artificial things which we have invented as political entities over particular bits of you know geographical territory and the idea of what Samoa is I think is very much something that remains in the conversation as part of the current crisis that's going on okay I wish um, I had more to add other than just Joe Rogan style. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, man. Well, like, just, you're kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's just sort of... I mean, my work very much focuses... I've got a paper coming out uh, at some point. <laughs> Let's promote your paper. <laughs> um, if it ever makes it out. Um, yeah. I'm currently doing revisions on a paper um, which concerned these acts that came out last year. And so perhaps this would be a good place to finish just because I think it summarizes a lot of yeah. my thinking about the Pacific. Mm. Um in, t- in legal terms, a lot of Pacific Island countries have multiple legal systems. One of them is a legal system which was forcefully imposed on them by European powers during the colonial mm. period. Mm. That legal system, in most cases, largely functions quite well um, and is like, you know, the institutions are all in place, but it is not of the country. It, did not, it was imposed. It's yeah. a colonial imposition. On the other hand, you have... Um, customary legal systems which have existed for hundreds and thousands hundreds or thousands of years um, uh, and like they are of the country they emerged naturally from the body politic which existed there mm. however as a result of colonialism those legal systems haven't always they've often been repressed they have um, not been able to sort of take the same course of development and they can end up sort of stereotyped as this is what custom is rather than custom being a developing legal system which it should so these Uh, these acts in Samoa were an attempt to promote a local jurisprudence and reintroduce custom into Samoa um, as a sort of developing thing which developed outside the confines of imposed European law yeah the debate is very much over it's it's very much a debate over we have institutions that work and there's people who want to try and get this customary law more make make law more of Samoa promote Samoan culture promote Samoan customary law Mm. The question is, um, how, like, what's the best way to balance that? Because, like, there's, it's not up to me to tell people that. Because at the end of the day, I am a lame white boy who lives in Australia. <laughs> um, but it's a legitimate debate that's ongoing, and there's sort of multiple. Interesting yeah, it's the system it. of uh, checks and balances. Exactly. Yeah. It's like. Yeah, can it's, you say that thing again? What? The system of checks and balances is solid. This is a- 
This is the system of checks and balances. The system of checks and balances. Well, it's solid. It's solid. <laughs> Which, this is the requirement. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, so to give you the specific sort of thing, um, you can shut me up anytime, I promise. <laughs> but, um, they've yeah. effectively bifurcated the court system. They have a customary court system for... Um, land matters and title mm. matters which is purely on customary land and then there's everything else which okay. still goes to the, the um, sort of European court system yeah okay w- within these customary matters you can appeal upwards to a top court and in that top court they impose um, they still uh, you know sort of promote the same checks and balances but they don't promote the idea of the sort of customary court system is that it's promoted from a customary perspective okay and so for example get, let me give you an example like you've got the right human rights in the Samoan constitution, unlike Australia. Oh, um, yeah. Well, thanks uh, for reminding yeah. us. Yeah, so you've got, like, <laughs> the right to freedom of movement. And so freedom of movement is a very vague concept. Like, what does freedom of movement mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know, what do you think it means? Oh, freedom to move your arms and legs. And yeah, see, so, see, it could yeah, mean that. Or it can, you know, it can also, fr- can be a, also freedom of migration. Yeah, yeah. it can be it's, freedom of migration. You know, like... Yeah, yeah, and so there's multiple different ways of viewing human rights because they're from the sort of top. They're a very broad idea, yeah. and so if you've got two different court systems imposing two different versions of law, one, like one might impose a particular constitutional right from the sort of common law perspective, and one pr- promotes them from sort of the customary perspective. Neither one's necessarily right or wrong, but like, does it work to have two different forms of human rights operating within the one jurisdiction, like? I think that's problematic, but that and that's without passing judgment on which interpretation is a better one because that's not my job to say. They, but they contradict each other. They could, yeah. in theory. Like it's not necessarily they would because it's just because people think about laws as just things that are written and you read the law and that's what it says. Yeah, that's not how law works. You have to interpret. You have to interpret. Otherwise, law. there wouldn't be you know judges. Exactly. If you have <laughs> and human rights law is like the Super, most open yeah. to interpretation yeah. because yeah. it's such high level stuff. And so, yeah. if you've got two different court systems, in, uh, you know, constructing or interpreting the same human rights using two different sets of like legal sources, one customary and one legal, what happens? Yeah. Um, and like. Like I said, I'm not passing any judgment on which interpretation is better because that's not my job. But I think it's worth thinking about is it fair or right to have different versions of human rights for different people or in different situations in the one jurisdiction? I think that's a little problematic. Yeah. um, How... Yeah. That's all I have to say. (laughs) It's a complicated issue. It's a complicated issue. Um, And it's not one I have definitive answers to. I think that a lot of people probably don't think about in their everyday lives. No, but they probably should is what I'm saying. Now, do do we want to do a a recap of everything that's been on this podcast? Ah! Okay, no, no, no. Here we go, Tom. Why don't you do a recap and see what you've learned? You know what? Damn right. You do it. Now I'll tell you about everything that's happened on this podcast. Yes, good day. After the 16 bar intro. Look, okay. It's very cheap MIDI keyboard going on here. <laughs> you can maybe do the second verse. Okay. Yeah, okay. the second verse. You first, you first, you first. Yeah. But yeah. Alright. Going very long. I'm sure the 16 bars will be over <laughs> any century. We got Craig on to talk about the Pacific because none of us really know much about the Pacific. When he was here for the start of the podcast, and it was kind of funny because uh, my, uh, Craig explained everything. Was, oh, this is oh, yeah. <laughs> hang on, hang on, let's just like, yeah. <laughs>
There is an attempt on going. Something about Polynesia, Melanesia, and Micronesia. I said something mean earlier, but we chose to bleep it out. And then Craig talked about politics in Samoa, and there was the thing that changed since the time we recorded the podcast last. Can start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. I'm just a lame boy living in Australia. I don't know much, but I try my best. He it... tries his best. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, keep going. Wait. That thing which Tom tried to brush over was in fact a coup which happened in Samoa. Well, sort of a coup. I don't want to impose language, but you know... Who is a very loaded time? <laughs> I still have some queen in the It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. So about that coup, yes. I think that the best way might be like the Prime Minister refused to sort of step down. Oh, so yeah, can okay. you call that a coup? I don't know. Like Democrats in America are calling it a coup, see them. And yeah, so, like, yeah. would you call it a coup, Tom? I don't know. <laughs> it's, even if it's not a coup, it was still pretty bad um, from a policy perspective of democracy. Of democracy is now you have two governments that both think be representing Samoa. But in start the fire, it was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. Don't give up your name. What the hell are Wendy's gonna put up with this shit for? Um, <laughs> there's other countries in the Pacific that. Climate change, climate change, change is water. Kiribati, Kiribati, Polynesia, PNG. And a few other ones that are going What about Tahiti? Is that also going underwater? No, not really. Oh, okay, that's good. In the immediate term. Oh, good. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's returning. We didn't start the fire. Kind of wish I'd done some singing lessons at some point. Oh, there's more to this. Um, in, earlier in the podcast, I thought Guatemala was in the Pacific. Then I was reminded that it's actually in Central America, which is embarrassing because I started learning Portuguese. I probably wouldn't be able to use much Portuguese, but at least I kind of know a bit more about the Latin world. I love it when I hijack things from the original topic to... Uh, I, I don't know where I'm going with this. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's returning. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't... Oh, wait, that's... Yeah. There was an attempt. <laughs> there was an attempt. Look, <laughs> uh, start the fire. Uh, I, can stop now. <laughs> I think I may have gone slightly too deep into the logistics of like what crew means, but that's okay. It's a, it's a it is a difficult topic, yeah. This is, uh, thanks for listening to the Voice of a Pyro um, with Wendy, Marco, sometimes Wendy, Tom, and Craig. Sorry, this is a mess. Stay tuned, stay tuned for our next episode. Hope you enjoyed the Pacific.